So, good evening. We are in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 to 4, just four verses tonight. I've entitled uh, tonight's lesson, Fuel to the Fire. I just want to recap the killing of Stephen. Uh, if you were here last week and the week before that, you would remember what happened there. Stephen is um, in front of the Sanhedrin. He gives the speech and that leads eventually to his death. He calls these uh, guys from the Sanhedrin a uh, stiff-necked people, uh, which is quite an insult. And that leads to them really being upset with him and saying, okay, we are going to kill you. They drag him out of the city. They stone him to death. There's a few um, witnesses. I think we spoke about that last week, that there's some witnesses, which is horrible for me because the witnesses have to throw the first stones. And those witnesses that threw the first stones in Stephen's case were false witnesses. Remember, that's what the text said. They lied about Stephen. And so they killed Stephen knowing that he's an innocent man. That's the epitome of evil. It's, it's just crazy to think about, about that. And what we picked up last week is that there's quite a few similarities between the death of, of Stephen and the death of Jesus. Right? They said similar things. Two particular things comes to mind. Stephen said what? He said, um, yeah, Father, for, for, forgive these guys. Don't hold this against them. And Jesus said something similar on the cross, right? Forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. What's the other thing that Stephen said? Into your hands I commit my spirit. That, well, that's what Jesus said. And Stephen said um, something um, similar. Well, Jesus said, uh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Same thing. Giving yourself over. He looks up to heaven. He sees. What's the key difference between Jesus' death and Stephen's death that I picked up? And there might be quite a number of differences, but this is the one thing that stood out for me. Is that Stephen didn't die alone, which is incredible. He looks up to heaven, and his, the Father in heaven is there, and Jesus is there, right? When Jesus died, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's talking to his father saying, well, Lord, why am I alone here? Which is incredible. Nobody on this earth will ever experience exactly the same type of suffering as Christ, ever. So um, thank you, Jesus, for, for doing that for us. Um, I want you to picture the Jerusalem church. I want you to keep that in your mind. Acts 2, 42 to 47. Acts chapter 5 is 12 to 16. Paints a nice picture of... Um, how this, what this church looked like. And I want to ask the question, do you think that a martyr like Stephen has the potential to kill a movement? Think about it. Imagine something like this happened here in Sweden. Like one of us gets killed in the streets. You remember that guy in Paris? Was it two years ago or something? He was killed outside the street. He was beheaded outside the school. He was a teacher in the school. He was beheaded by a Muslim in the street in front of the school. Imagine something like this happens here because you're a Christian. How would that affect our church? Association with the church gets you killed. Now, let me be a prophet and predict. I suspect one of two things will happen. Either churches will close. If we kill, if we get killed for being part of a church, either all the churches are going to close or they're going to overflow. Either one of those two. 
what happened in Jerusalem. Those of you who know the Bible know exactly what happened. For those of you who don't know, you're going to see tonight. So I want us to take note of the story as a whole, right from the beginning of Acts chapter 1, and just situate this in, in context. And I want us to include the enemy here. And we know who the enemy is in the book of Acts, right? The enemy underlying the surface is Satan. He's busy. Um, take note that this was not the first death happening in the church. Remember, there was a previous death. There were previously two people killed, two members of the church killed, Ananias and Sapphira. But who were they killed by? Were they killed by God or by Satan? They were killed by God. God is the one that executed judgment, which I think was um, very necessary because it instilled respect uh, for God into this new and young church and made sure that the people part of this new movement knows the integrity that Jesus requires um, of His people, that lies and deceit, the very, um, the very uh, natural behavior of Satan was not allowed in, in this movement. So um, this time, however, with Stephen's death, somebody else is responsible for a death in the church. This is not God disciplining somebody. This is Satan killing somebody that belongs to Jesus with the help of evil men. Can you imagine the average church member? The average church member looks at this and he's like, okay, when, when, when Ananias and Sapphira were killed by God, I respect that judgment. They were liars. But Stephen, man with the face of an angel, I mean, I, I, wouldn't you think that God would protect this guy? Surely you would think that God would protect oh, so, 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 so God is not going to protect us. So, so me following Jesus, the man who conquered death, following him is not going to prevent my death. I could be killed tomorrow in the streets. What would you do? This is crazy. And I think sometimes maybe we bring up this question as well. Well, my Christian, surely God's going to protect me from cancer, from death, from suffering, from the death of my spouse. That is not going to happen to me. Well, we know the Bible doesn't promise that. I can imagine that many people maybe thought, maybe, this, maybe my faith in Jesus is a little bit irrational. Maybe it's not a good idea. Because the reason why I follow Jesus is because He conquers death. And now I see a man being killed. I thought Jesus would protect him and his people. So we have studied this. Satan is the ruler of the world. And he is also the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We've spoken about that quite extensively. Um, and we've also studied that God has given a form of authority or a form of power to Satan. God allows him to be the ruler of the world. Um, and so, uh, Satan can do things against God's people that can hurt them. God uses Satan. God allows Satan to do these things. And in Stephen's case, it was allowed. And although Satan is more crafty than we are, God is always a step ahead of him. But in this instance, this is what I think happened in Satan's plans. The message of the cross was first preached on the ordinary streets of Jerusalem. We've dealt with that, right? In an ordinary neighborhood of Jerusalem. From there, it was preached in the temple courts. And eventually, it was preached in the presence of the Sanhedrin, the highest position in all of the land, the gospel. So the gospel came from the streets up to the Sanhedrin. We see through the story how Satan tried to stop the message from spreading further. 
We see at key intervals, he uses the Sanhedrin to block it. The Sanhedrin says, stop preaching it. He uses Ananias and Sapphira to stop it with deceit. You see these glimpses of Satan trying to stop the spread of uh, the, the message. Um, he used human authority to silence the apostles. He used warnings from the Sanhedrin and imprisonments and beatings. You guys keep quiet or we're going to beat you or we're going to throw you into prison. But what happened? They kept preaching. They kept on preaching. The rise and martyr of Stephen shows us that Satan has reached this point. If I can't kill the message, then I will kill the messengers. When I look at the whole story, that's what it looks like. I mean, Satan has tried everything. He's tried every corner, every means possible to stop the spread of the message. And I think he reaches a point now where he says, okay, if I can't silence the message, let me kill the guys who are spreading this message. Which I think he was clever because this will drive fear into them. This will make them stop, right? If these people know they will pay with their lives for the message, they will stop preaching it. And this is a common strategy of Satan, isn't it? We know it. Satan gave away some of his modus operandi. Where? Look at this. Job 2 verse 4. Skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life. Satan knows. If I threaten these Christians with their lives... They'll stop preaching. Well, let's see how this worked out. I'm talking too much. Everybody looks half asleep. <laughs> you're awake. Nathaniel, that's incredible. If you're awake, that's incredible. All right. Everybody on the same page. Hello, my brother John. Welcome there at the back. Introduction is done. Let's look at what the verses say. Chapter 8 is 1. I want you to just picture in mind. Sorry, before I go there. Stephen is lying on the ground. He's dead now. Stoned to death. This is where we catch up with the story. Luke is going to tell us what happens now. Stephen is dead on the ground. Right? The verse says, verse 1. On that day, that day Stephen is dead. A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So the first thing that we see is this. The disciples, the believers, what do they do? Oh, Stephen is dead. What do we do? Run. Run. Because you are next. And so they run. This is, if you've read uh, any New Testament studies and you read the word diaspora, diaspora. The Greek word here is diaspero. It's the Greek word for scattered abroad. And I want you to keep this in your mind. It's almost like when I hear the word scatter. What, what do you think when you hear that word? I think seed. What did you say? Seed. You're scattering seed. Okay, and so the, the literal Greek word means to distribute into foreign lands. I like that. We're going to get back to that. Um, and the text says everyone except the apostles were scattered. The average church guy ran away. The average pew sitter runs away, uh, leaves Jerusalem, 
finds another place. They probably fled to family members or to friends. Maybe some people had lands in different places, and so they ran away. And only the leaders stay behind. Only the apostles stay behind. And I think that is exactly what Satan wanted. I think he was happy about that. Why? Because now he could zoom in onto the leaders who stay in Jerusalem. He could zoom, zoom in on them. The crowds who cheer them on, they've been removed. It's like you have the politicians in this country alone. Nobody votes for them anymore. And you've got carte blanche on just the leaders and the politicians. The crowds are gone. Nobody's voting for them. And, and to a large extent, the crowds were their strength. If you read through the stories of Jesus and you read through the story of, of Acts, you see that the Sanhedrin didn't know what to do because of the crowds. It's the crowds that gave the message strength. It's the crowds that, in a sense, protected Jesus um, in many instances. Now, and also the other thing is, now Satan has managed to separate the apostles and the people. So now the people are, in a sense, sheep without shepherds. So now he can ravage them, right? Wrong. Quick question. Why do you think the apostles stayed? Why did they not go and flee with the Christians? If you want to answer that, you're welcome to. Why did the apostles stay? Maybe they were the only ones who didn't fear to be killed for the message. Because they're the first-hand witnesses of the resurrection. Maybe. How would you evaluate their leadership if they were sissies and they ran away? You preach to everybody that Jesus was raised from the dead, but you are scared to die? Do you really not believe in what you preach? I think that they were the bold ones. Um, what would be the word on the street if they did run too? Oh, these guys are scared. Can you imagine? I don't think the movement would have survived, to be honest with you. Ladies and gentlemen, they had a message worth dying for. The apostles had first-hand experience. They walked with Jesus. They saw Him die. They saw Him resurrect from the grave. I think that's why they stayed behind in Jerusalem. Does that mean that the other Christians were not? Well, not necessarily. I think that they were just as passionate. I just think that the apostles felt the responsibility to remain behind, to stand their ground, and to support the, the ministry. All right. Verse 2, what's the other thing that happens? So, what we find first is, the Christians, they run away. Secondly, godly men, they go and they bury Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. So, the Christians are running away, scattering, and there's some godly people who come, they pick up Stephen's body, and they go bury him. And they mourn for him. You see here, once again, some type of resemblance with Jesus. So Stephen said some of the same things as Jesus, and Jesus was buried by people outside of his discipleship group at that stage. He was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. And now Stephen is buried by people, we assume, we think, most likely, outside of his Christian group. The text, the previous verse says, the Christians had fled. But godly men came and buried. So it's like almost afterwards, when they reflected on this event and remembered who went and buried Stephen, they said, those were godly men. They were actually godly men. Maybe they didn't believe in Jesus yet. They were godly, and they buried Stephen. 
they were probably godly Jewish men um, on the verge of conversion. But I believe that this was maybe a sign. It was unusual for the condemned by the Sanhedrin and those who have been stoned to death to receive any respectful burial. Why? Because if the Sanhedrin condemns you to death, it means that you're cursed by God. Nobody cares about you. You're an outcast and a reject and a person that opposes the will of God. You're in direct opposition to God. So when we kill you, it means you're worthless to us. You don't deserve a respectful burial. So people who were stoned to death, they were not mourned over. They were rejoiced over. I'm so glad that you are dead, that you're no longer going to spread your false messages. And so the fact that Luke records this for us tells us that God somehow orchestrated, as in the case with Jesus, somebody to go bury Stephen respectfully and thereby signifying, hey, heaven doesn't condemn this guy. The Sanhedrin might, but heaven doesn't. So it was a work of piety and charity and mercy to bury the dead. Um, I think it's incredible. I read a little bit of a note here just about how it worked when um, people were buried who were stoned to death. The Jews did not bury those who were condemned by the Sanhedrin in the burying place of the fathers. So you get a separate burying place. As they would not bury the guilty with the innocent. And they had a separate place for those who were stoned and for those who were burnt. Can you imagine being buried in the... I mean, and for these... Look, for me, I mean, who... Like, just out of interest's sake, who really is passionate about where they get buried? Really? I mean, but I think for the Jews, this was like serious. I also don't care. I mean, you know, babes, you can do anything with my dust. If there is dust. You know, um, but for these guys, this was a big deal. There was honor and respect in the place where you were buried. You see it right from the beginning, right? They carried Joseph's bones through the wilderness to Canaan because it was so important. Abraham bought a piece of land to bury his wife. This was serious. But if you, if you were stoned, I mean, or burned, you were accursed, and you wouldn't be buried in a, in a nice place. According to the, a specific tract, the stone wherewith anyone was stoned, the post on which a person was hanged, the sword by which one was beheaded, and the cord by which he was strangled were buried in the same place with the bodies of the executed persons. As these persons died under the curse of the law, the instruments by which they were put to death were considered as unclean and accursed, and therefore buried with their bodies. The worst type of burial would be if you stoned or killed under the Sanhedrin. But it's not the case with Stephen. Godly men mourn for him, and they bury him properly. We see God's blessing in that. What do we pick up so far? Verse 1, Stephen is lying dead. What do we pick up? The church scatters. They run. And then godly men come, and they bury him. What does the, first, the, the, second, the third verse tell us? But Saul, here comes the antagonist, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so this would run parallel with the church scattering. Saul persecuting church scattering. The moment that Stephen dies. It's almost like there's this commotion. I can imagine in my mind there's this commotion. Kill him, kill him, kill him. And stones flying and this guy dies. And suddenly the whole world is silent for two seconds. And then everybody flares up again because now Saul is on fire. And he's chasing more Christians. He wants them. 
And the godly stay behind and they, they, they bury um, Stephen. The Greek word there for destroy is lumai nomai. Lumai nomai. It means to destroy, to devastate, and to ravage. It signifies the act of ferocious animals, such as bears and wolves, in seeking and devouring their prey. The text says Paul dragged the people to prison. But later, in Paul's own testimony in, in Acts chapter 26, verse 9, he says it went further, and it was interesting for me to look at this, when he explains his own um, way of life as Saul, he says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. Yeah. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Can you imagine that? Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. What's interesting for me that I did not pick up before is that I don't think Stephen was the only guy that was killed by the authority of Paul. It seems to indicate that there were other individuals as well. That's perhaps why Paul writes in Galatians 1 and verse 13, for, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Now, those words, try to destroy it, is translated in the King James Version as he wasted it. And it's the same concept as when rebels come and they sack a town. When people raid your place. I don't know if you've ever been robbed. Has anybody here been robbed? Like somebody broke into your house and robbed, stole your stuff. <laughs> I was hoping nobody would put up their hand. We live in the land, the land of milk and honey. How can that stuff happen here? It happens in Africa, not here. How horrible does it feel when you walk into your house and it's been raided? I, I'm telling you, I will drive over somebody. I'm so angry. I'm just honest, being a sinner. We, we, we acknowledge this morning we're all sinners. I mean, that's what I, I it, you know, I've, it's happened to me a few times, and it's horrible. That's what, that's what Saul did to the church. Now, there's a few observations here. Paul later to the Galatians admits that he tried to destroy the church. What does that tell us? He didn't get it right tried. I like that. He tried very hard. Secondly, Saul participated in more killings than simply Stephen, and therefore explains why he called himself what? The worst of sinners. When Paul says he cannot understand and comprehend the grace that God has for him, he has in his mind the people that he killed. Imagine him thinking about standing there by Stephen. It's horrible. And this morning's lesson, I think, is relevant at this point. He understood the grace of God, didn't he? None of us have done worse things than Paul. Maybe he's correct when he says, I'm the worst of sinners. It's nothing that we have done that's worse than what Paul has done. And Saul had one objective. Suffocate the gospel and its people. That was the goal. He wanted to stop this thing from spreading. He was under the influence of Satan. A quick Okay, trick question, quick trick question. Was Saul an instrument of Satan or of God? Yes. 
Good answer. Good answer. We're going to come back to that question. Let's go to verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now, my first observation, as you know, I've brought this up before, is that the gospel left Jerusalem in the hands of ordinary pew sitters. I've brought this up before. The gospel left Jerusalem in the hands of ordinary Christians like you and me. The Greek word there for preachers is euangelizo. The gospel, the euangelion, was proclaimed by ordinary church people like you and me. Some of them couldn't even read. Most of them probably couldn't even read. But wherever they went, they preached the gospel. This is not what we see in modern Christianity. In modern Christianity, the average church person doesn't even know how to preach the gospel. Doesn't even know where to start. And we can read. And we ask the question, why is Christianity not growing? The preachers and the church leaders, where were they? They were in Jerusalem. They stayed behind. It's, like, it's not like the people left Jerusalem and then they like, gathered under a tree, some of them, and they're like, okay, we need to wait for the preachers to come so we can start preaching the gospel. It wasn't like, okay, we need to wait for the guys in Jerusalem to come meet us under the tree so that they can develop a program so that we can start reaching out to this community. That's not what the text said. They actually did the preaching. Now, that doesn't mean that they were all public speakers. It doesn't mean that they all were eloquent. What it simply means is, when they met people along the road, or they met their family members, they said, hey, we just came from Jerusalem, man. We were chased out of there. This guy by the name of Stephen, he was killed. He was really innocent. But you know why he died? He died because of Jesus. Just a few years or months before that, he was crucified. And he was raised from the dead. You know what? And we saw his followers speak in languages that they did not know. We saw, them we, we saw them heal people that were lame from birth. We saw it with our own eyes. The Messiah has come. And you know why he has come? To forgive us of our sins. We've been set free from the Jewish law. We no longer have to go to the temple. That's the story they told. And they could do it. And every one of them could do it. It makes me wonder sometimes why we can't do it. Maybe our Christianity is just not real. I don't know. There's a, uh, the true gospel, the true gospel is of such a nature that ordinary, unschooled disciples of Jesus can proclaim it and explain it. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a biblical magician. Master. There's a movement going throughout the world. I don't particularly like it. Um, because it feels like a, a man-made thing. But in general, it's not really. It's just a way of explaining the gospel in a simple way because people don't seem to be able to do that. It's called Four Fields, Four Fields Missions. You can go read up on this. Very interesting. I went for the training. And here they teach you, it's a methodology of how to share the gospel with somebody. And so they, they say that there are four fields. The first field you go into, there's no... It's just a barren land. In other words, 
there's just a group of people that live there, and, but that's your field. And then the second field is, is where the seed has been sown. And so the second phase is this. You found your field. Now how are you going to sow the seed in that field? And so it goes on to the fourth field until it produces fruit. And then they give you methods of, um, of, of how to share the gospel. One of these would be you draw three circles. Now my friends mock this, but they try to make it as simple as possible. You just have three, you draw three circles on a piece of paper and you, you explain how, you know, what the gospel means. And then there's another um, simple way of just explaining in 15 seconds why you are a Christian. Like, these are methodologies that these guys are trying to throw out there to help ordinary Christians to share their faith with people. And many people have grabbed onto this. This has basically penetrated every country in the world. You can go read up on that. Go look at the YouTube videos on Four Fields Missions. So there's a need for that. Ravi Zacharias said, time is a necessary component for understanding the big picture. If we want to understand the big picture, we need some time. And there's a lot of time between us and the book of Acts. And so we can sort of see the big picture. Um, so what is the big picture? Based on the verses we've looked at tonight. Here it is from my side. The message of the gospel, I believe, had saturated Jerusalem. The church has been there for a while. The gospel has spread from the streets to the, to the Sanhedrin. I think everybody in Jerusalem had heard about this. I don't think, I, and I think the message of the cross has reached every corner of um, Jerusalem. What we've got to keep in mind is, remember, Satan is the one that, is in, that, that has some authority. And nobody could be killed in the church unless Satan allows it. Oh, God allows Satan to do that. So this was orchestrated, I believe, by God. And I believe he used Satan. The time came, because the message had now filled Jerusalem, the time came for the message to spread from the neighborhoods to the nations. That's what Jesus said. He said, go and make disciples of what? All neighborhoods. No, all nations. That's where he wants the gospel to spread. Steve Addison, I met him, uh, he was, he's from Australia. He's actually highly involved with this. He's a missiologist. He, he wrote a few books, and he said the following. Every time, I don't know if I've got it on here. Uh, every time the disciples settled, God unsettled them. Every time they were relaxing, God's like, okay, well, let somebody be killed and unsettle you so that the message can go. Keep going. It's like a kick on the bum. Guys, we need the gospel to go out. It is true that when we read the story as a whole, that Satan persecuted the church, right? You agree with me. But it's also true that God scattered the church. Do you see how they work together? Like God uses Satan to bring about his will. Because Satan thinks, ha, 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 I'm winning. No, you're not. You're losing, dude. And God's using you. And it's beautiful for me just how, how this illustrates to us the wisdom of God that's far superior to that of Satan, that this angelic being with all these powers, he cannot even realize God is using him to bring about his um, great mission. We look at Stephen dying, and it is terrible. But God looks at it and says, wait till you see what happens, bro. You guys think this is bad? Wait till you see what Stephen... Stephen wants to die for me. In actual fact... 
I'm going to come fetch him from the clouds of heaven. And I'm going to take him. I'm going to snatch him up. And he's going to have a great eternal. You sad that he's dead? He, this guy, are you crazy? He's going to be with me forever. And Satan's going to think he won you. And you've got no idea what's going to happen next. Because this is going to set the church on fire. And send my message throughout the world. As Tertullian, Tertullian said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The death of Stephen led to the expansion of the kingdom. The spread of the gospel and the saving of many souls. It's like God is saying to Satan, you kill one of my messengers. I will allow you to do that. You kill one of my messengers, and you will see how I produce thousands more. Because suddenly, the ordinary pew sitter has now become an evangelist upon the death of Stephen. You cannot stop the spread of the message. I want us to think about this. God's message will keep on spreading throughout the world. God doesn't need you and me to do it. Think about it carefully. He doesn't need us to do it. He will do it regardless of you and I participate or not. The question is, do you want to participate? Do you want to be used by God? That's essentially the question. He said his church will never die. How will he do that? Well, he'll do that through faithful men. But we can go our whole lives and not participate in this mission. Because we're busy with our own things. This is a classic New Testament case of Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Satan thought he can break down the church. And God's like, no, you're going to fuel it. You're going to put fuel on the fire. But go ahead, see what you can do. Um, concluding remarks. Firstly, a quote, text, Isaiah 14, verse 27. Nothing can stop what God has ordained. Nothing can stop that. Satan can try what he wants. You and I, we can try what we want. At the end of the day, if God wants his gospel to go throughout the world, it will go throughout the world. People can try and stop it. We don't have to fear great leaders. I mean, sometimes we do do this. You know what we do? We're like, oh my goodness. Oh, when the, we, you know, when the government does this. Oh, when this, when this policy is put into place, it's the end of the church. No, it's not. The government can do what they want. The president can do what he wants. If God says he's going to send his message throughout the world, he will do it regardless of what men do. Secondly, if we suffer like Christ, we will glory with Christ. Stephen is a brilliant example for us. Thirdly, don't fret when evil men succeed. God might just be um, using them for a bigger purpose. You know, don't worry about Putin and Trump and Biden and these guys are just puppets. They're puppets in the hands of God. And then we say, yo, they're puppets in the hands of the Illuminati. The Illuminati, the Freemasons, they are nothing. 
compared to the vastness, the greatness, the wisdom, and the power of the King of kings and Lord of lords, who we've come to worship tonight. He is orchestrating this. He's in control of this world. He uses evil for good. And at the end of the story, he has the victory. Jesus has the victory. You and I, we have the victory. The big question that we need to ask tonight, the two questions we need to ask tonight is, will I die for Christ? And secondly, will I proclaim His message? Lastly, I find this to be a beautiful illustration of what the church should be. We see this in a big scale over a long period of time, but I think we can narrow it down. The true church gathers to worship and scatters to witness. They were in Jerusalem, and I want you to picture this. When they were in Jerusalem, it was all fun and games. It's all worship. Jesus is great and wonderful. And there's lots of fellowship and lots of kumbaya. Lots of, oh, this is incredible to be a Christian. But only for a certain amount of time. Then God said, okay, now you need to stop focusing on yourselves and go. And He kicks them out of Jerusalem. He kicks them out of their comfort zone. And He says, go into the world and be witnesses. This is the model that our church should be. Yes, we gather to worship. But if that's all we're supposed to be, that leads to the death of the church. We gather to worship. Why? To strengthen one another. To fellowship. Because we need one another. Why do we need one another? Why do we need to gather strength? So that we can go scatter to witness. I'm going to pray now. And in like five minutes' time, we are going to scatter. The question is, as we scatter, are we going to witness? And we've spoken about this before. It starts with a prayer. Just asking God to use us wherever we go. To open up conversations for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this um, example of the first century church. Thank you that we can look at this story and know that behind the scenes there's an evil being trying to thwart the uh, progress of the gospel. But help us to never forget that there's a power far greater than him that is fueling the gospel, which is the power of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom of you, our King, and the sacrifice and love of your Son, Jesus Christ, that fuels this mission. Father, I pray tonight for every person that's here. I ask that you will help us to be mission-minded. Help us, dear Father, to switch on our radars, to be aware of the lost and hurting around us. Help us, Father, to let go of our selfishness, to just want to have conversations with people about what we want to talk about. Help us to be servant-driven in our conversations, to take time to let people speak to us, to take our ears and to listen to people instead of trying to just talk about whatever is on our agenda. To care enough for people to seek an entry into their hearts so that we can sow seed there that gives you glory and that changes their lives. Please forgive us our sins. Father, please help us to be going to this week that will give you glory, Father, and guide us and give us wisdom, Father. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.